Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, Paul is now moving on kind of to the close of his letter. And and if you recall, uh, we've said that the book of Colossians is kind of built around this theme of... uh, of the centrality of Christ, Christ as the sinner. And, and uh, you know, he is more than enough. He is all satisfying. And, and out of Christ, all these other things come out, all the characteristics and the, the ways that we operate in the world with our families and with the body of Christ and with, the, with non-believers, those things flow out of Christ. And that's kind of where we kind of got um, the name of our series, Centrifugal. Uh, thinking of that scientific term that, oh, you know, things are, are forced out and, and the, they're kind of controlled by what's at the center. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of how we've approached it. And Paul has been combating false teachers uh, who have come in and tried to uh, confuse and, and uh, persuade these Colossian Christians that they ought to uh, listen to this kind of spiritual ranking system, if you will. Uh, he, he's been combating this thought that there are different levels of spirituality in this hierarchy, and uh, he's, he's been fighting off these practices that are prescribed uh, by these false teachers um, of worship of angels and uh, this extreme kind of bodily fasting in order to induce hallucinations. Um, and so, Paul has been writing to combat that, and his answer is not just don't do that, those things are harmful, but you don't need a higher degree of spirituality because Jesus has, is enough. He's already everything that you would ever need. And he, he communicates that through uh, the term saying that Jesus is, uh, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In, in Christ is, is completely full, and so you can't get any more full than filled to the max already. You can't, you can't go further than that. There's no room for another level, another rank, or uh, any sort of hierarchy. And, and so he's been saying that, and then he tells us about how that ought to transform us. Throughout the book, he's been talking about how we have to then put off the works of the flesh. We have to, to take off like a garment, you know, these, these dirty linens, and then put on Christ. And, and he, he kind of uh, wraps it up saying that it's the uh, that has to be all done through love, which is the bond of perfection. And then in the kind of the tail end of the book, he gives us, he gets into the practicalities. He tells us how we ought to, to interact as the body of Christ, how we ought to treat each other. And then he transitions to the family unit, which we've been looking at for the past couple weeks. Uh, he, he's, he's dealt with uh, the various relationships that we have in, in our physical uh, world all with believers, and now this morning he transitions to deal with his own desire for evangelism, and then also how Christ at the center ought to propel us into evangelism, how it ought to propel us into the watching world and how we can interact with the watching world. And he kind of dovetails off of what we talked about a little bit at community group on Friday, the idea that our conduct in our work, our conduct with our supervisors, is, it's to, to kind of lay the, the foundation for future conversations, future opportunities, our consistency in Christian behavior, and, and these Christ-like characteristics, they're there to kind of begin to, to lay a foundation um, and, and to see, uh, for, for our supervisors and co-workers to see this uh, life of consistency, the characteristics of of godliness in our lives. So then when we have an opportunity to verbalize the gospel, then we haven't lost our chance because of the way that we've been acting. And he kind of dovetails into that uh, this morning, you'll see. But first he starts off uh, speaking with prayer. If you look at verse 2 with me, his first exhortation to the Colossian church in his closing is this. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Pretty simple. Paul's expectation is that Christians should already be praying. He says continue. He doesn't say he says he doesn't say start praying. He says continue. This is the default posture of the Christian life. 
prayer, communication with the Father. Jesus said in in Luke 18 that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And he goes on to give this parable about, about the persistence of prayer. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that we should pray without ceasing. Now, he doesn't mean there that our whole life should be uh, minute by minute taking up with uh, one long prayer meeting, but rather we should continue in a spirit of prayer, a spirit of continuation. You know, a couple, uh, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you ever had the Nokia phone with the snake game on it, you know what I'm talking about? Or you ever had the flip phone? Uh, there, a lot of times when you wanted to text message someone, you would send out the little message and it would go out and you would get the, the little message and then you would send one back. But then a brilliant thing happened, uh, you know, in 2007 and when we got the iPhone, right? And then all of a sudden we have this threaded conversation. And, and I can look back in, in my phone to, to 2007 and see some text messages and photos and all these things, all these memories, and see things that I've said to people and have their address of, of where they've lived. And, and I, can, I can go back and search those things. And it's a conversation mode. But a lot of times the way that we kind of treat prayer is we're kind of pre-2007 text messaging God. It's like, I'm going to give you the little, the little thing, but then I just completely forget about it until the next time I need something, and then I'm going to do it. But our attitude, the, the posture of prayer, should be one of a continual, uh, a continual conversation. You should be able to look back in your prayer life throughout the day and see, okay, I said something, and then I waited, and then God responded, and then I said something again. It's not that you're sitting there texting all day long, maybe for some of you, you are, but uh, it's not like you're sitting there like moment by moment ignoring every single person in the world, you know, like doing all these things. But you, you send one and then you wait a little bit. You're constantly in communion and fellowship with that person over text. You're constantly in this conversation. And that's, that's really what, what um, Paul's getting at here. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, when we do that, it, it does a couple things. And this isn't uh, an exhaustive list, but just a couple things I wanted to point out to you. Prayer shows submission to God. It shows that we are submitted to him, that he is our creator, he is above us, and we're not an equal with him, but we are placing ourselves under his authority. It shows submission to God. Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, or some of your translations may say because of his submission. Jesus, who is God, willingly placed himself under God's authority, the Father, in order to petition and have this conversation. He gives, gave us both the pattern and the possibility. He gave us the pattern and possibility for prayer. He made it so that we could approach the Father because of his work at the cross, and then he showed us what it looks like to do that. So when, if Jesus submitted to God in prayer, we also ought to submit to God in prayer. Jesus says in John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He, he's saying, if you're under my submission, if you are a part of me, then you, are, you can ask. You have this free entrance, this free uh, line to be able to have a conversation. Now, the second thing that prayer does for us, or that, that it shows, is that we have a reliance on God. We're under his submission, number one. Number two, that we rely on him. When we don't pray, it shows that we don't have faith. And faith honors God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so if we are to be people of faith, we're justified by our faith, then we also need to be people of prayer. Because God isn't glorified in our own strength, but in our weaknesses, in our reliance upon him. And it's something I've been, I've been thinking about um, a lot lately. Uh, 
with this idea of strengths and weaknesses. And, and, it, and a lot of times the way that we live trying to self-justify is we live trying to, to show that we're not weak, that we're strong. But we're told by Jesus that when we're weak, then he is strong. And I would rather have Jesus be strong. So it's better for us to admit that we're weak so that way Jesus can be strong. He can show up and, and, and be way better than we would ever be. We don't have to spend time protecting our, uh, you know, our, um, our identities. We don't have to spend time protecting uh, this perception of who we are because Jesus will ultimately be strong when we are weak. Now, a great philosopher in 1999 <coughs> gave us the, or in 1990, he gave us the um, kind of the mindset that we should have in depending upon God. In his 1990 release, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him, uh, MC Hammer gave us the words, we got to pray just to make it today. And that is the mindset that we need to have. A lot of times we pray because we want something, but not because we're desperate for God's work in our life to make it through today, to be connected to him in the spirit. So we should heed the words of Hammer and pray to make it today. Jesus tells us in Matthew 26, verse 41, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Because our nature is prone to temptation. You know, we sang it in the song this morning, uh, um, you know, Lord, I, uh, I wander though I feel it. You know, we have this temptation to, to stray. But when we rely on God in prayer, he empowers us to be strong. He is strong on our behalf and anchors us. And so Paul here, he's advocating for steadfastness in prayer, consistency in prayer, rather than intensity. He doesn't care if you are good at speaking. He doesn't need a good talker to be saying all these crazy things. He just wants you to be consistent, having a conversation all the time, asking, asking, communicating. It lines up well with, uh, you know, Jesus's uh, command or, or his, his parable to say that we should be like a child in our faith. Because children are really good at that. They're like kind of like really naggy all the time. They're just down here and they're like, I need this. I need this. I need help with this. Look at this. And they're just, you know, it's like, look at, look at my, I mean, look at this empty paper, you know, this is awesome. They're just like excited about like stuff. You're like, why are you excited about that? I don't, I don't understand. But thank you for talking to me, you know, and telling me about that. It's kind of a little bit baffling, but that's the type of communication that he's getting at. What Paul wants us to do is communicate consistently and faithfully with the Lord, not necessarily with quality. Uh, one commentator uh, um, said, a praying life is about slipping into prayer at odd hours of the day, not because we're disciplined, but because we're aware of our own poverty of spirit. Recognizing that you need help. That's what he's saying. It's not that like all of a sudden, you know, we're really regimented in the way that we do things and we have such a good schedule because not many people are really good at having a good schedule and being consistent and disciplined. But awareness that you need help that you're willing to ask for help is what he's getting at here. Now, Paul tells us not that we should just be consistent in our prayers, but also gives us two attitudes that we should have in prayer. He says watchfulness and thankfulness. This thanksgiving are things we're to have in prayer. Look at what he says. He says, uh, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What he means by watchful there is to be awake or to be vigilant, to, to have this alertness in prayer. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly reminds the disciples to be watchful. In Matthew 24, verse 42, he says, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Peter reminds us of submission, watchfulness, reliance on the Father in prayer. In 1 Peter 5, verse 6, he says, humble yourselves, 
There's that submission. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we're exhorted to, to be alert, to have uh, this watchfulness about us for, for a number of reasons. But when we're connected to the Father, we, we get a heart for what he cares for. When we pray, we want to submit ourselves to him so that way we're not asking what our will would be done, but that his will would be done. But we need to discover what his will is by speaking with him. We need to submit ourselves to say, Lord, show me what's important to you so that I can make that important to me. It's that act of submission of laying ourselves down and taking up what is important to the Lord. Now, he says we should also do this with thanksgiving. We want to continue in prayer with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a theme that we found throughout the book of Colossians. We've talked about it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, um, in various verses. Paul keeps coming back to this. And what Paul means here by thanksgiving, and what he's referencing is, is giving God the glory in everything and acknowledging him, who he is, and taking the things that you care about and putting them on the Lord. As, as, Paul, or as Peter described here, casting all your anxieties on him. It, it's this recognition that God receives glory for everything, and when he does do that, then we, we follow through by giving him our cares, our abilities, or our, our anxieties. And we recognize that he can do this, and it's kind of this uh, cyclical uh, situation where this submission and thanksgiving go together. They feed into each other. Uh, when we're aware and alert, when we're submitting ourselves to the Lord, then it produces then thanksgiving. Uh, this uh, one pastor, uh, I follow him on Twitter, and I've kind of shared some of these tweets before, but he has, uh, he, he has a, a three-tweet series. I'm read them to you because they're epic, but he has some great points. He says, the DNA of joy is gratitude. Have you ever noticed that complainers don't have much joy? Well, when you're casting your anxieties on the Lord, and you're, you're giving those things to him, and trusting him for those, it's going to then produce in us a thanksgiving, and we don't need to complain then because we trust him. He goes on to say, Is it easier for you to count your complaints than it is your blessings? Is it easier to see need than to recognize grace? Then he goes on and says, It's entitlement that fuels complaint. When you think you deserve what you don't deserve, you focus on needs unmet rather than grace given. Focusing on needs unmet rather than grace given. And that's really the key there. We want to recognize all the amazing things of what God has done for us. That's the gospel of what God has done, not what we need to do, what he has already accomplished on our behalf. And so we need to respond in thanksgiving, recognizing that he has already accomplished everything that we would ever need. He is more than enough. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so instead of Uh, having the attitude of grumbling or complaint because we're seeing needs unmet, we want to be recognizing that we've been given grace. And Paul will say later that our speech should reflect that. In Psalm 50, the psalmist writes, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So if you offer thanksgiving, then you glorify God. And without thanksgiving in our prayer, without thankfulness, then prayer simply kind of gets boiled down to a way of complaining to God about bad things that would be happening. Right? It's like, I want this. 
I need this. This terrible thing's happening in my life. But if you're never thanking him, it doesn't really become prayer. It becomes, it's complaining. You're just complaining to God rather than having this conversation in this heart of thanksgiving. So Paul exhorts us to have these, these things, watchfulness and thankfulness. So he moves from prayer in general uh, to prayer for himself and, and others who are engaged in gospel ministry and mission. Look at verse 3. He says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul says, at the same time, pray for us. You're praying for yourselves. You guys are continuing a prayer. Let me, let me put some things on your prayer list there, some prayer points for you guys, since I just told you to pray. Here's what you should pray about. He gives a couple things. He requests prayer for himself, and he's also uh, most likely here rec- requesting prayer for uh, his companion who's serving with him, Timothy, and other co-workers that, he's prob- that he'll go on to mention uh, in verses 7 through 18. So Paul's requesting prayer for, for uh, their work. But look at what he says here. He doesn't just say, hey, pray for us. I mean, Paul's writing from prison here. Okay? He's writing from a jail uh, situation. He's not like in this super plush space. He's not enjoying you know, traveling and uh, seeing the sights. He's not with family. He's in jail. But he doesn't say, hey, pray that I would get out of jail. He says, pray for us. And then here's what he says, that God may open to us a door for the word. Paul's requesting prayer, but not for himself, but for the furtherance of the gospel. He wants an open door for the word. And this ought to be uh, something that we hold, uh, take hold of in our prayer lives. <clears throat> you know, our prayers a lot of times uh, can be focused in the direction of, you know, like we talked about last week with our relationships with work or our experiences there. It's like, Lord, deliver me from this terrible circumstance, terrible situation at work, where if we want to pray similarly, we should pray that God would use our circumstances, our situations, our, our areas of influence for the furtherance of the gospel. So we want to pray that, that there would be open doors for gospel opportunities. We want to pray that people would meet Jesus. Because personally, you and I don't have the power to change and transform lives and save people. But Jesus and his word does. So we need to pray for an open door for the word of God, just as Paul did. The gospel must be furthered, not our kingdoms. Our kingdoms are going to end. Our lives are a vapor, scripture tells us. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Isaiah tells us again and again, the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word It'll, it's eternal. It'll be there. So God prepares a way for that message, and he prepares it as we pray into this, as Paul requests for the Colossians to um, pray. God provides the opportunities. He softens the heart of the hearers. So we need to pray that God would do that He would give us opportunities in our sphere of influence. You know, we were just talking about this on Friday, how I was just so thankful that the Lord's each given all of us a different place of influence, a different different place that only, you know, only you are going. You know, I'm not going into any of those fields. I don't have any open doors in those fields that you guys are involved in. I have none of those relationships, but the Lord has strategically placed you at this time in history, in the city that you live in, in community with the people that you're in with, at the job or career or school that you are at, and and you are there for a purpose. And you're building relationships that I don't have, and I'm building relationships that you don't have. And so those things are gospel tools for us, 
not just things to be overlooked. So we want to pray, as Paul prayed, that we would take hold of these opportunities. I mean, if you look at, at Paul's uh, his ministry career, he was in prison for a lot of it, but he didn't let that stop him. He was like, I'm here. Okay, well, this is just a sphere of influence. These are all people that I have to be around, so I'm going to make these people all like my area of ministry. This is my mission field all of a sudden. And then he would get free, and he'd be traveling around, and he'd have a different mission field. But wherever he was, the people that he was with, he was going 100% to minister to them as the Lord gave him opportunity. That's what we need to pray together because we have been uniquely equipped, uniquely placed in the areas that we're in for God's glory. So Paul has a mission. He prays for this open door for the word. He says that he wants to declare, he goes on in verse 3, the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So this mystery of Christ, we've talked about this in the book of Colossians already. It's something uh, not that we would think of as a mystery novel where we're trying to We really don't know what happened, but at the end, we're going to figure it out. When the Bible talks about something as a mystery, it talks about it as something that was uh, previously a mystery, but now has been made known. This is like the Bible's version of like movie spoilers. You just, you get to read the end. Everything, you find out everything that you need to know. He says here what this mystery is. He tells us in Colossians 1 uh, verse 27, He says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glory of this mystery. What is it? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This idea that we can know Jesus, have salvation, be found in him, and have this hope of glory, this hope of of heaven, eternal life. In Colossians 2.2, he comes back to it again. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Jesus is the response. He is the solution. If you want to, you know, if you're looking for something and you want to find satisfaction in the best ending, it's Jesus. He's the movie spoiler. Boom. Jesus is the end. He's the happy ending that we've all been looking for. He's where it all gets wrapped up. Everyone lives happily ever after. That's the only case where it exists, where you have actual eternal life and everyone lives happily ever after entering into the joy of the Lord. So Paul says this mystery of Jesus, of his work, I need to make it known. It's got to be declared. He says, and this is the reason that I'm in prison. This is the whole, this is how I got myself in this situation. But he is encouraged because his attitude is that I'm in prison, but the gospel isn't in prison. It's not chained up by this. In in 2 Timothy 2, he, he is also similarly in prison, and he says, I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You cannot stop it. It is not bound. You cannot put the word of God in prison. You cannot put this proclamation of the gospel in prison. You can put Paul in prison, but he will continue to do the work of the gospel, and the gospel will do its work outside of the walls of his confinement. And so he wants to pray for an open door, and he says in verse 4, that he, especially that he would be able to make it clear. Clarity is what he's searching for, what he wants prayer for, to be able to speak clearly, to proclaim this mystery in a way that is understandable. Now, after requesting prayer for his own gospel work, for his own evangelism and missions, Paul now turns to encourage the Colossians to continue their own work, their own gospel uh, evangelism. In verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. So he says, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Now, we can kind of boil that down quickly to just, you know, say if you're, if you're going to walk in something, then that means you're probably going to be uh, filled with it or you're going to, to receive uh, the benefits of, of, you know, if you walk through uh, a puddle of water, then you're going to 
be wet. You're going to take on the results of that. But this word walk here, it, it means to order one's behavior. To order one's behavior. So Paul says, order your behavior specifically toward outsiders. Do it with wisdom. Be wise in your interactions with outsiders. Walk through this wisdom in a way that that you're strategically working to have it go before you and create relational opportunities. Now, notice what he says here, okay? He isn't asking for a moment of wisdom, but rather a lifestyle of godly wisdom. He doesn't say, Lord, give me wisdom when I'm going to talk to this one person, because I really feel like I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to share the gospel with them. So like now I need it. He says, your life should be characterized by wisdom. You should be ordering your behavior towards others with wisdom specifically. It should be a consistency. Now we all need wisdom. And when we studied James, we saw in James chapter one, verse five, that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So if you lack wisdom, you don't know how to proceed in it. You don't even know what it means to order your behavior in the direction of others in wisdom. James tells us we can ask and the Lord will give it to us. Now, if the Lord gives us this wisdom, it's because the Lord is all wise. He has all wisdom. And when we demonstrate this wisdom in laying out this consistency, this behavior before others, before outsiders, before the watching world, we're again reflecting his character. We're giving them a preview of who God is. You want to know what Jesus is like? Well, hopefully my actions have begun to lay the foundation for you to understand that. Hopefully, the, the wisdom that we're displaying is godly wisdom. Now, this isn't anything new that Paul's praying for them. He's just kind of restating what he's already said in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he writes to them that he's been praying for them and asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They would demonstrate his character, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, we need this wisdom because we need to figure out how to interact with outsiders. Uh, some of you guys have seen, and so maybe you've been a part of this, uh, there's kind of a, a relational bubble sometimes within Christianity. There's a Christian bubble where, like, everything is Christian. Like, you can buy, you know, like, a Christian version of everything. There's, like, Christian fruit. You're like, what, what makes this? There's nothing that makes this Christian, you know? Christian furniture. Well, it was made by, okay. Like, what's the point of that? You know, there's not really, like, necessarily a, a reason for that. Sure, like, you want to, like, support a brother, then fine. But, like, that's different. But we tend to have this divide between the, sac uh, the sacred and the secular. We tend to have this like, okay, well, we're in the Christian bubble and everybody's out there and we are not supposed to be of the world, so we better like just stay far away from that because if we get over there, then there's going to be like, you know, we're going to be out of God's will. We're not going to be obedient. And what Paul's, he, he's putting these instructions in here because what does he say? Why is he writing this? They're being told about false teaching. They're being tempted by these people who are speaking lies to them. Right? So what Paul's saying here is have wisdom. Figure out how to interact with outsiders. Not just ignore everybody who's not a Christian and do your own thing and live in your Christian bubble, but have godly wisdom be rooted in in your relationship to the Lord, and then be like Christ, who was not in a Christian bubble, but was incarnational in his 
uh, in his life. He was 100% man and 100% God. He was both the sacred and the secular put together. He was in the world, but not of the world. He lived alongside sinners, but yet himself never sinned. He had the godly wisdom, and that's the type of wisdom that, that Paul tells us that we ought to have. We need to resist and be aware of the wrong kind of outsiders, the wrong kind of influence that would be harmful, because there is a certain level of like, hey, don't just be like, you know, wild and don't have any wisdom, but rather be engaged with your neighbors, your co-workers, people that you have influence with in your, uh, in your life, and seek to win them to Christ. Don't just ignore them. Don't just you know, forget about them. Be like, you're not Christian, so I can't ever talk to you. We can't ever hang out of work. We cannot go to lunch together. We cannot go see a movie. Like, don't act that way, Paul's telling, Paul's telling us. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And let's face it, because like we're looking for the easiest path, path of least resistance every single time. No one wants to put in extra work. We all just want to figure out what's the lowest level of work we have to put in. And then like maybe I'll put like one little tick above that to show that I'm awesome. But that's pretty much how it usually goes. So we need to be told this, that we're specifically told to look to outsiders. <clears throat> so, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, he tells us. So the way that he writes about this section in, in the original language is that we would, to make the best use of the time, he speaks of it in the terms of a financial transaction. That you have a relationship with someone else, and they have an amount of time, they have an amount of a vision of ways that they're watching you, and that you are buying their attention with the way that you are living. Your behavior is oriented towards them in a way that you are purchasing their attention, purchasing their time by the way that you act. The, the, one of the, the closest original translations for this is, I'll read it to you, it says, in wisdom, this is, this is for all of verse 5, in wisdom, be ordering your behavior towards those on the outside, buying up for yourselves the strategic opportune time. So your behavior is a type of currency that's going to purchase the time of outsiders so that when it comes time to share the gospel, then you can cash in all that time and be like, I've rightly represented Christ, and you've seen it. I've bought that, this opportunity with your, uh, with your behavior. And so, therefore, that person is likely to listen. But oftentimes, uh, you know, the way that we are oriented in our inconsistency of Christian behavior, we kind of become like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. And, you know, maybe they were going to, maybe they, they could have had a conversation, but Peter just takes off his sword and chops off someone's ear. It's like, well, how the heck is that guy supposed to hear what the heck you're saying? If you're gonna, first thing you're going to do is chop his ear off. That's going to be a problem. And Jesus just picks it up. He's like, here, let me fix that. Let me show that, like, here's what I'm really about. Let me show you with my actions, my Christ-like behavior. So then when, he, that, when, then when Christ went to the cross and that servant is there watching Christ on the cross, he's like, oh, that's the type of communication that was purchased with that small action so that Jesus' large action at the cross would just be magnified. So we don't want to chop off the ears of our hearers before like, we have the opportune time. We want to, you know, put in the time to love and serve them as God would love and serve them, so that way when we do have an opportune time, then we use it wisely and rightly recognize uh, the gospel and communicate it in a loving way. We have hearers who are willing to hear. So Paul wants us to have this attractive life and walk with the Lord that the watching world would see. 
Now, we need wisdom because wisdom, it tells us how we should act in these situations. Because if you just go in on your own, then it's going to be like a wreck. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to mess it up. But we need that godly wisdom. So they, they kind of go hand in hand. Now, most of our interactions with these outsiders, co-workers, colleagues, friends, classmates, most of our interactions take place verbally. So Paul addresses this in verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious. He gives us the first order here in how we ought to walk in wisdom. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. (coughs) Excuse me. With our speech, we should make the most of every opportunity. He's just spoken to us in chapter 3 of Colossians in verse 17 about this, uh, both in our actions and our words. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, both, your actions, your physical actions, and the words that you say, your speech, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So your words should be in concert and in nature with Christ's uh, character. We need to have gracious words, he tells us. Two things that characterize this. Gracious words. Our words should be gracious, as we said earlier, because we are recipients of God's grace. Because God is gracious and he shows grace, then our words should likewise be gracious. They should be kind and compassionate. We should have pleasant words. Secondly, we're told that we should have words that are seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. Salt has a twofold purpose. Its flavor brings out the best qualities of food. You put a little bit of salt on your steak, and it just draws out, you know, all the uh, the best flavors. You put a you sprinkle a little salt on uh, on just almost anything, just the right amount, the perfect, you know, it, it could go on almost anything, and it's just great. You ever had salt and ice cream? So good. Or an orange? It'll blow your mind. Just a sprinkle. But it maximizes flavor. It, it just makes the, uh, the best qualities of the food come forth. That's what Paul's saying that our words should do. We should use them graciously and they should, they should highlight uh, just a great quality, a compassion, this pleasant nature. It should highlight God's character. The second thing that it does is it, it's a preservative. It prevents corruption. Salt acts as a preservative. In Ephesians uh, 4.29, this is why Paul writes, Likewise, that our speech should not be corrupting talk that comes out of our mouths. It's a preservative. It prevents corruption. So our speech should not be corrupting that comes out of our mouths, but only such that is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to the hearers. Grace to the hearers. So it's Marked, this idea of preventing corruption is also seen with uh, building up, maximizing this, this flavor. It's appropriate in its timing. It's showing compassion and pleasant and kindness and, and just a sweetness in the way that you communicate. Uh, one historian, uh, Greek historian Plutarch, he said this, and I thought this was an interesting Uh, kind of fact regarding salt uh, that kind of came out and and really kind of resonated with the way that Paul speaks here. He says, the many call salt, uh, and he uses the word for it in Greek, but it's in Greek, so I can't read it off the top of my head because I don't have my cheating Bible software. Uh, He says, the many call salt graces because mingled with most things, it makes them agreeable and pleasant to taste. So ancient Greeks would call salt graces, They'd be like, give me some more of that graces, because it would make things more agreeable. That was a great, great parallel. 
makes them more pleasant to taste. That's what he is getting at here. Our words should be gracious and seasoned with salt, both kind and, and bringing out the best qualities and also a preservative, preventing corruption, preventing decay. Now, the reason that he, he tells us that we should do this, he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, and he wraps up with this last little bit here in uh, verse 6, and he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The goal is that believers would be prepared to answer unbelievers. You got to know how to respond. First Peter 3, uh, verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you need a response. You need to respond in gentleness and respect. You need to do it uh, in preparation. So our words should be ready. Be prepared for an answer. And Paul gives us uh, an emphasis here on how we should answer with grace and seasoned with salt. We should be ready to answer intellectual questions, moral questions, doctrinal questions. Those are just three of the, the questions that we should answer. And that doesn't mean that you need to be the Bible encyclopedia. Like, if anybody ever asks me anything of any time, I need to be able to have, like, an answer, like, to quiet them quickly. That's not what he's looking for. Gracious response, kind response, seasoned with salt, appropriate. It does mean that we should be prepared because it's not just talking about people in general, but individuals in your life. Like a good general, as you are interacting with the people in your sphere of influence, you're assessing the situation. So you see that the people who you work with, oh, their background uh, you know, is rooted in uh, Buddhism or whatever. So then, uh, you know, different Eastern religions. So then when they're talking about the idea of, you know, having a little bit of an idea of talking about the idea of karma, that you get what you deserve, then you know, okay, well, my entrance with you is to say, well, that's not how grace works because through grace, you get what you don't deserve. You get more because God is more generous. If you only get what you deserve, that's going to be a problem. So you got to assess and know who you're talking to. So you kind of become a case, you kind of become like this, the student of the people around you. Well, when we talk about studying the Bible, there's a term that we use uh, to, to use that term, and it's, it's exegetical, the type of study that we do as as, uh, you know, Bible students and pastors. And what that means, it means to pull out, to pull out. We exegete, we pull out. And that's what we need to do with our culture and the people that we are in relationships with. We study them not to read into them what we want to read into them, but to figure out what's in the text and pull out. We figure out what's in the person and who they are and how then do we address uh, what's going on in them. How then do we strategically talk to them as the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom? Now, it's wisdom that we need because we don't also want to just, it's not like we're, we're not trying to communicate with them and strategically interact with them as you would when you're assessing an enemy. You know, if you, in battle, you look for the enemy's weakness. But you're looking for a place for the gospel to land. You're looking for the place for the gospel to have an open door, not where you can make them feel like you've highlighted something that is going to bring shame or that something that's going to make your communication worse, but rather prayerfully asking that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom to see how the gospel can be contextualized for that person. The message doesn't change. The gospel stays the same. That Christ came, lived a perfect life on our behalf. He lived here uh, his whole life demonstrating who he was as the Son of God. He was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day and has ascended to God the Father. It all stays the same, but how then do you apply that 
in your conversations. We need to be able to, to have a strategic manner in which we are able to do that. Now, don't stress out. You don't need to create binders on all your friends and people that you work with. You know, you don't let the Holy Spirit give you wisdom. Ask him to see the people that you interact with as he sees them. Lord, how do you see my coworkers? How do you see this person? And give me your eyes to see how you see them so then I can interact with them how you would interact with them. That's what we're looking for. That's what Paul's exhorting us to do. To then take this and apply it uh, in the context of your opportunities for evangelism. So let's close. Let's pray together. We'll respond in worship. But let's pray specifically uh, before we you know, wrap right now uh, that the Lord would give us wisdom. The Lord would show us how we ought to interact. Because it, it's tricky it's tricky in, in, you know, in the different areas of expertise that you guys are in. It's, it's definitely, it's not an easy thing. But that's why it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So we need to be able to submit to him, ask him to give us wisdom, and then work out of our own weakness when he's strong. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful. <coughs> we're thankful for your love. And that you've given us uh, that demonstration, ultimately, of Christ at the cross. So that we might know you. Lord, you showed us that love that when we were your enemies, Lord, you pursued us. You showed us how much you care. And Lord, we want to be able to share that with others in our lives. We want to be able to um, operate, Lord, with loving kindness and graciousness and uh, Lord, we want to speak uh, with wisdom. We want to walk in wisdom with the people that you've put us into relationships with. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be submitted to you first, just as the disciples were first found with you before they went out, as they first were connected to you and kept coming back to rely on you and to submit to you and to, to make their lives and identities found in you before they then went out and tried to uh, reflect those characteristics. Lord, we want to do that same thing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just put a, a couple people that we interact with in, in our minds right now. Lord, a couple people that we have conversations with, Lord, whether it's every day or uh, the person that we just see at the grocery store every single week or um, whatever it would be, Lord, we pray that you would just put those couple people on our hearts Lord, and remind us to be in prayer for them and remind us to walk in wisdom where we want to reflect your character. Lord, we want people uh, to see Jesus and we want them to meet Jesus and we want Jesus to be uh, exalted in this uh, area, in the Bay Area, where we want Jesus to be famous. And so we pray that you would do that work, Lord, in in us, so that we would then go and serve you with the same love that you have served us with. Lord, and so as we now reflect upon that, and as we respond and worship together, Lord, we pray that you would um, cause us to submit ourselves to you, Lord, recognizing as we worship you in song that you are our creator. And so do that work, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.